Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I want you to, to let this thought sink into your heads and hearts. The past is the past, but a present purpose will leave a lasting legacy. Past is the past. Nothing we can do about that. But if I will adopt a purpose in the present, it can leave a lasting legacy for generations to come. Past is the past, but a present purpose will leave a lasting legacy. I'm really excited about what it is that I've prepared to teach you today. Last month, we learned about how each of us can build a strong life. This month, we're learning about how to build strong families. So last week, we had to lay a foundation in place for that, and I talked about how to build a strong marriage. Today, I want to talk about your personal critical and decisive spot in your family's line and how God wants to use that to shape your family's eventual destiny. And to do that, I want to share with you the story of one man in the Bible who dared to believe what God had been saying to his people on this subject. And then I want to go back and show you that this has been God's intent from the very beginning of scriptures, this one thing, the building great families that shape the world around us has been the plan of God from the very beginning of time. The building of great families that shape the world around us has been the will of God from all of eternity. And get this, your family is on God's list. He intends to use your family to make a very real difference in this world. Let's start with the story. The nation of Israel began with a man whose name was Abraham. And Abraham, uh, if you know anything about the, the Jewish faith or the Christian faith or how those two things fit together, Abraham is one of the big names. He's one of the heroes. And he was a man who had great faith. And he was a man who had a personal friendship with God, was known as the friend of God. Moses called by that, uh, that same title. But Abraham, friend of God. But here's the problem. Abraham was not exactly a model family man. Now, I don't have time today to get into all the details, but suffice it to say that, that uh, Abraham had two sons by two different women, and he decided to disown one of the sons and, and not just write him out of the will, but he sent him while he was still a boy and the boy's mother out into the desert without enough food and water to get them to any place where they could start a new life. He just sent him out into the desert to die. God, however, had a plan for that boy and, and his family that would follow. And so he intervened in this situation and he saved that boy and his mother's lives. But the simple fact that God intervened and that family became this great nation does not in any way qualify Abraham for father of the year award. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, uh, Abraham had a son. His, uh, the, the son that he favored, his, his name was Isaac. And, and Abraham then poured all the rest of his life's energies into forming Isaac into the man that he thought he should be. Went through some incredible things. You should read the book of Genesis, read that family story. But there was this problem. The boy Isaac spent a whole lot of time with his father Abraham. And not only was Abraham's good character passed on to Isaac, so was Abraham's character weakness. So his favorite son also showed signs of moral cowardice when he became a grown man, just like Abraham. Here's what I'm talking about. Both of them on two very separate occasions, separated by years and geography, decided when they were put in a tight spot that they would just pretend that their wives were actually their sisters and they gave their wives to foreign kings 
specifically for the purpose of those kings having sex with those women and marrying them, and all because Abraham and Isaac were afraid of what might happen if they stood up and fought for their wives. Great guys, huh? Abraham had a grandson. Isaac was his son. Isaac had a boy named Jacob who was uh, kind of uh, following in the family suit. He was a conniving, lying coward. Jacob had 12 sons, and those guys all became chieftains of their different tribes, and those tribes later confederated and and then formed as one nation, the nation of Israel. But the chieftains in those tribes were men of great influence, of course, and, and one of them was a man named Judah. Incidentally, it was into the tribe of Judah that Jesus was eventually born, and and for 2,000 years since then, that has brought a whole lot of glory and good reputation to the name of Judah and his tribe. But Judah himself, got to tell you, kind of a dirtbag. Genesis 38, 1 Chronicles chapter 2, tell us that Judah's first son, Judah had, had children as well, Judah's first son was so evil that God struck him dead and wouldn't even tell us why. Now listen, when you stop and think about all of the garbage that happens in this world that God does allow, all of the horrible evil that human beings will work against one another, and God for some reason says, for now, he struck Judah's firstborn son dead because he was so evil. Whatever it was that that guy did, I don't even want to hear about it. But Judah had, uh, his son, uh, firstborn, I want to say his name was Onan. Onan uh, got started poorly, and then the whole thing ended, as I mentioned, with, uh, with God's personal execution. Uh, but, but Onan had, had jumped into a marriage that was strictly forbidden by their people, and then he ended up dead, as I mentioned, and it left the family in a precarious spot because Onan and his wife had not given birth to a son yet, and in their culture, that meant that it enacted a certain principle and law within their family that everybody recognized. It was about preserving the honor and the family line of every family in Israel. And so if a man died without producing a male heir, his next brother had to marry the widow woman, father a child, a son, hopefully, over time. And then that firstborn boy would not be the son of his biological father, but of his mother's first husband, okay? So that first husband dies, doesn't have a child, brother, marries the widow. If they have a boy, their firstborn son becomes the living family line of the man who died. You tracking with me? Okay. So Onan dies, uh, now the family has to do this thing, and his younger brother, Er, takes in the woman, but he won't do right by her. He, uh, he basically refuses to honor the principal among their people. Instead, he just uses this woman as a sex slave, but is very careful to make sure that he doesn't get her pregnant. He just uses her for his own pleasure. God watched all of this, and he decided that that was such a disgusting, contemptuous thing that he struck him dead 
Bad day if you're Judah. Two boys down, right? Dirt bags. And God says, enough of that. I'm making an example. He slays the first son for we don't know what. He slays the second son for dishonoring this woman and dishonoring his family. But Judah had three sons. And the third one uh, was a guy named Shelah. And Shelah was still a little boy. He wasn't old enough to get married. He wasn't old enough to produce an heir. And Judah says, you know, we still owe the woman, Tamar, uh, a son. And we owe our firstborn an heir. And... um, but the boy's too little, so tell you what, tomorrow I will raise this boy to do the right thing, and it's going to be years, you're going to have to wait, but when he gets old enough, I will marry him to you, and you and, can, and he can preserve uh, the, the family line together, except that he never did. Shelah grew up and became an adult man, and Judah just kind of conveniently forgot to do what he was supposed to do. Tamar one day woke up and realized it's never going to happen. So she said, there is more than one way to skin a cat. She dressed up like a prostitute. And in that day and place, prostitutes always veiled their faces so that their identity would be protected and as a sign of their willing shame. And she went out and she, uh, she trapped Judah. Judah was on his way on a, on a business trip, and she went on down the road a little ways, and she, she's setting herself out there like a prostitute available for hire, and Judah, dirtbag that he is, stops and hires her, but then goes, left my wallet at home. What are we going to do? He says, I tell you what, I'll leave my ID with you and a little bit of collateral, and he goes on his way. He says, and then I'll look you up later, because you know, his ID was his family staff. It had, had their family's history carved into it and, and was the sign of, of his, his spot as the, the, the chief over the tribe, and it was necessary to his, uh, for his authority to continue to, to rule, to be recognized. So he's good for it. He's going to come back, but he never does. Meanwhile, she sneaks back into town. Time goes by. She's pregnant with twins. She starts showing really fast. And somebody one day notices the profile and says, you've got to be kidding me. Tamar's pregnant. And they run straight back to Judah. And they said, Tamar is pregnant. And Judah sees his, uh, his deliverance, right? He's going to be able to publicly humiliate this woman, execute her, put her to death. And his family doesn't have to deal with her anymore, So they drag her out there. They're getting ready for the big public execution and and Judah's preaching and all of his righteousness about what a horrible woman she is. And she says, but what about these? And she pulls out his ID and the sign, the proof that he had in fact fathered the two boys that she was pregnant with. And they lived happily ever after. Right? I mean, wouldn't it just, you know, let bygones be bygones. It's all good course not. The family descended into shame and to, to deep and generational patterns of shameful, sinful behavior, and they became the, the tribe that was mocked by all the other tribes of Israel as people of low account and great shame. And all of Judah's descendants, all of Judah's descendants were known as men of low honor. The Bible has some stuff in there you really uh, either should or should not read, depending on on what you're you're hoping you're going to find in there. But then, out of this shameful family, there stepped one man, a few generations later, one man who decided that life could be and therefore would be different for his family 
going forward. And his story is recorded in the middle of one of the most boring parts of the Bible. It's, uh, it's from the book of First Chronicles, and it's a list of family trees. Now, if you're, if you're really into Ancestry.com, you might dig it, but the rest of us normal people read it and go, boring, because it's just, it's just page after page, chapter after chapter of names you can't pronounce anyway, and you can't tell if they're boy names or girl names. And so line after line after line of who begat who, and then boop, right in the middle of the list, we find the story of this one man. It's in First Chronicles chapter 4, which begins with just more names, and then all of a sudden, this guy's story, and it's told very briefly like this. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, which is, a, it sounds like the Hebrew word for pain, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I'll be free from pain. And God granted his request. So here's the storyline. A family descends into deep dishonor by disregarding moral responsibility, by giving into lust, which then mutates and becomes this horrible version of incest and adultery. So the family develops a well-earned shameful reputation that then shadowed them for multiple generations. But then one man, one man dares to believe that his heritage, that is his family's history and values that have been passed down to him, don't necessarily have to determine your future. So he envisioned a completely different way of life and a whole different destiny for successive generations. And he then took that plan to God. God was free to either say yes or no, but this one man who dared to believe differently, who dared to ask God certain things for his family, had God say, that's exactly what I'm talking about, and he granted the request. God granted his request for a few things. Influence, for God's presence and protection for his family, and for the ability to change his family's reputation going forward. It's an incredible story. It's just two verses long. But this story illustrates to me the power of heritage, the importance of purpose, and the possibility of leaving a lasting legacy if you decide. The power of heritage, the importance of purpose, and the possibility of leaving a lasting legacy if you dare to believe and decide to act on it. Judah had a certain responsibility to, uh, as a father, to teach his sons to become morally upstanding men. And he failed in his job. You know why? It's because he was not a moral man himself. He acted like it publicly, and his own sin with Tamar wasn't seen for quite some time. Years after his own sons, after his sins, his sons' sins had found them out and brought about their own death. It was years later that we find out what kind of a guy Judah was. His own corrupt heart wouldn't be seen for years after his sons were destroyed, but eventually we see what he is. But here's the problem, is that Judah did not stand alone. You see, Judah had been influenced by his great-grandfather Abraham and by his grandfather Isaac and by his father Jacob, and and all of that family heritage just kind of got passed down the chain to him, and there came a day when he owned it. His weak character was what he had observed in the men in his family, and he decided to continue it. 
And he contributed his own dishonor to the family's heritage and legacy continuum. So that by the time Jabez's generation shows up on the face of the planet, no one in the entire family is known as an honorable person. Except Jabez. Except this one man. Jabez decided that he didn't have to be like everyone who had come before him. He decided that regardless of his ancestry, he could become an honorable man and that he could shape his family's future deliberately. So he asked God for a few things I want to talk about for just a few minutes. First, he asked for expanded influence. If, if you read the story, it doesn't immediately present that way. What you read is this prayer that says, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. And that may seem at first like he's asking God for money and real estate, but you also have to understand about Israelite culture that you couldn't buy property from other Israelites and then have it for you and your family for the rest of life or for generations to come. Because every 50 years, they wiped the slate clean and all of the debts were settled and, and the property rights went back to the original families so that everybody in the nation could have a chance at least once a lifetime to manage their affairs in a way that would honor God and that would bring blessings to them and to their children. So this can't, at at, at the first level, it can't be simply about, I want more real estate to pass on to the kids, or I want to to farm more crops so that we have more money, because sooner or later, Israelite culture was going to say, we're going to even this whole thing out again. What was he asking for then? He wanted influence. He he wanted a, a, a longer reach for a while, the ability to to hold sway over many people over the course of his lifetime. And I think it came from watching how many people in his extended clan were of low character, and he wanted something for himself and for his family. He wanted to have a different kind of influence than they'd always had. So he decides, as for me, I'm going to live honorably. And for my house, well, yeah, my people are going to live differently. And he prayed for the blessing of God that would then expand, enlarge his circle of influence. First part of his prayer. Second part of the prayer was this. He asked for God's presence and protection. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm. That that prayer, uh, God keep us safe, um, is not especially noteworthy because we've we've prayed it, you know, bunches and bunches of times. Jabez's prayer for protection isn't noteworthy in and of itself, but but when you add it to his prayer for greater influence and when you couple it with his request that God's hand be on him, it takes on new meaning. See, the Israelites at this point had um, not even really heard of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have this understanding that if you ask God to be with you, he will. Because God was, was sequestered away from the people, either in a, in a tabernacle or up on a mountain behind the clouds. And, and he would occasionally visit men, and it usually was with some display of his wrath. But the idea that God was going to be personally present with you, you could have a friendship with him, and that he would equip and change you and help you to live not heard of. Jabez watched his family and saw what happens when people try to go it on their own, but what could they do, right? But Jabez said, I'm going to pray a prayer that no man has ever prayed before, that God will actually reach down out of heaven and put his hand on me. It's this prayer that that God would be present in his life, but not just, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here in spirit. No, no, he wanted him actually there guiding him. So, so close your eyes for just a minute and picture this, this guy Jabez, whatever he looks like, uh, and, and this great big giant hand that reaches down out of heaven and grabs him by the shoulder, and he's now, he's now steering 
Jabez through his life, and, and there's some dangerous uh, perils up ahead, and he steers them around him, and, and there's some hurdles, and he gives him a leg up over him. There's the picture of what Jabez is asking for. He's saying, God, I need you here. I can't do life on my own. I've watched my family do that. It doesn't go so well. Will you please be with me? Will you protect me? Will you steer me? Will you help me get over the hurdles? But he also prayed for protection, and it was specifically against, against enemies, his historic enemies of his family. But he also understood this, that if God were to grant the first part of his prayer, the expanded influence, that he was going to get new enemies. Because about the time that you begin to shape and affect the way that large numbers of people think, there will be people who come against you with everything they've got. And Jabez, this wise man who believed that life could be different, said, I'm going to need a God who protects me from not only the things I've seen thus far, and not only the things that I can imagine out in front of me, but from very real enemies who will come against me when God starts to bless me. I think that's a very insightful prayer. Not asking for a literal hand, but asking for the literal presence and help of God. You get this because it's really important. That idea that God would literally be present with any person who invited him to, while unheard in Jabez's day, is promised to every one of us. Somebody's going to get a hold of that today. It's going to change their life. God is with his people, but so few Christians today really believe that God will be literally present with them, that most live their lives from day to day acting like God is, well, in heaven somewhere up there or or out there, like they are more or less on their own in this world and merely hoping that maybe at, oh, I don't know, church on Sunday, you might brush into him and have one of those moments. But then we go back out to the real world where we have to face life on our own. Jabez somehow dared to believe that if he asked God to be constantly present, he'll do it. And the Bible says, yep, God did it. He was actually present with this man and laid his hand on him and helped him. Third element of the prayer is this. He asked God for a new reputation and a new destiny for his family. And that can be kind of hard to see, again, in this passage that's so abbreviated and truncated. But when he said, so that I will be free from pain, it's an interesting prayer. I'm impressed with this Jabez character's insight. He was no dummy. He was painfully aware of his family's reputation, and he dared to believe that God would literally accompany him through his life that put him 2,000 years ahead of time, but he'd also grown up with a deep and personal problem. His name, Jabez. His mom said, you little pain in the... mm," and, And called him that his entire life. Do you know anybody whose uh, parents were so hypercritical and insulting of them all of their growing up years, then in their adult years, you can see they're just this battered, empty husk, robbed of all self-confidence and sense of self-worth. They sign up for abuse again and again and again with other people. Jabez grew up his whole life with his mother saying, you are the biggest pain in my life. Other moms are telling the stories of all these great things and the the blessed moment when their sons came along. His mom can only tell the story of how much it hurt. And every single day reminds him of it by calling his name. 
His culture put such deep stock in name meanings that that they'd occasionally change a person's name if they saw their fortunes change or if they saw their character change. Jabez grew up with a name that said he was a pain. I think his prayer to be free from pain was a little tongue-in-cheek. He said, I don't want to be that guy anymore. I want a new reputation. I want a new destiny for myself and my family. Not not asking that their lives would be completely free from any little owies, but that they wouldn't be the pain family anymore. But be something honorable, right, and good. It was a blessing to the rest of the community. Great story, Cliff, but that was Jabez's family, not mine. How do you know that he wasn't just an exception that God made? What, what makes you think that God might do that for me and my family? I want to show you. I think this is exciting. I'm going to set the stage for you. God has established the nation of Israel as his own people. He had some kind of exclusive relationship with them that he in, intended to use to bless not only them, but he said it to Abraham, it's through you and through your descendants that I want to bless all the world, all the nations of the world. I just I want to pour it out on you and your family first, but I want there to be enough that it splashes over into the neighboring nations and that it captures their attention. And they said, who is so fortunate as to have their God with them like Israel? I want in. And they would come, there would be this great in-gathering of the nations eventually who would just say, we want to be with Israel's God because it's the only way to live. It's it's the great blessed life. When he established them as a nation, God had given them then a set of laws that was supposed to function like a national charter, sort of like our constitution. It's recorded in the part of the Bible called Exodus. It's told again the whole, the whole national charter is read aloud again just a couple of but three books later in the book of Deuteronomy because their great leader Moses who had accepted this national charter and entered into this covenant on behalf of his people with God that established them as a nation and as the nation that belonged to God. Right before he, he lays down to die, he says, it's important that you get the message again. Remember who we are. We're the people that belong to the God. And here are the terms of our relationship. Deuteronomy, deuteronomos, second giving of the law. It's one more time reading the National Charter. So if, if, you, if you're a student of these things, read the book of Exodus, read the book of Deuteronomy, they'll sound very similar to you. Their national leader, Moses, about to die, hand off the reins of the nation to Joshua, but before doing so, he's going to remind the Israelites of how God intended to use them to bless the whole world. See, God had a plan. Moses outlined it in the part of the Bible that, uh, that I'm referring to and that I'll read a little bit of, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to take you just briefly through the chapter. We're going to skip a few verses in there, but I just kind of want to give you a whirlwind overpass uh, overview of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Highlighted some things to help you see the theme. So I'm going to start with verse 1 and then skip from there. Here's what he says. These are the commands, decrees, and laws. This is Moses speaking. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Now Listen. So that you, your children, and their children after them, see the generational thing here, the, the, the destiny for families, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and, and when you get up. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which land? The land he swore to your forefathers to give you. Be careful 
that you do not forget the Lord. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land. Which land? The land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Going to bring this promise true through family, down through the generations. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Why do we have to do all this stuff? You tell him, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. Why? So that we might always prosper and be kept alive through the generations, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. If we just do the things that God has planned to make our families well and keep them together and to to have this, this, this bright effect on the world around us, if we just do the things that make God attractive to the world around us, he says, that counts as righteousness. It wasn't about, hey, make sure you're, 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 make sure that you do all the moral laws and you skip all the filthy ones. It, It wasn't about do what's right or I'm gonna burn you. It was I have a plan for you and your family to shine like the sun itself in a way that attracts the world to you and to me, your God. And I will count that as your righteousness. Was it moral law? Absolutely. So Moses laid out God's plan, working through families for generations to come to bring the blessings of knowing him to the whole world. Jabez Ask God to change his family's future. God said, yep, I'll do it. So those are either ancient stories that meant something then and no longer apply, or they mean something very real to us today. So here you go. I'll commit myself. I think that if we will ask God to change us and to use our families We can count on him granting our prayers too because it's been his anointed plan all along. Listen, you want God to do whatever you ask him in prayer? I'm gonna give you a little hint. Just ask him for something you already know he wants to do. And he's on it. I mean, on it. And right before Moses went to lay down and die, God said, make sure you tell him the part about the families. Make sure you tell them that my plan is generation after generation after generation for your families to, to, to be prospered and, and to be attractive to the world around us because of all the blessings that I pour out on you for your faithfulness to me. I want a part of the plan. I believe that it was not just the case for one part of Judah's line. I think it's this thing that's put in the scriptures for us to to look at and and long for and then ask God for. I think that if we ask God to change and to use our families, we can count on him to grant us those prayers because it's been his announced and anointed plan all along. But listen now, God wants to do this, but he'll only do it if we abandon any selfish motives and ask like true Jesus followers who will use our expanded influence and his literal presence in our lives and the new reputation to shape our generations to come for God's glory and not our own. 
See, all this business of asking God for blessings, you have to understand the relationship with God. God said, I only offer one kind of relationship, and it's like this. I get the glory in the universe. I'm the most glorious being. I get the glory in the universe. And if you will join me, and if you, if you come into relationship with me, you have to remember who deserves the glory. And if you live your life in such a way that I get glory, you get the blessings. Now, what do you want? Celebrity status or health for your family? You've noticed those two things almost never go together, right? Come on, people. Help me out a little bit here. Okay, thank you. You've noticed that celebrity status and healthy families almost never go together, right? Which do you want? You want to be the notorious dirtbags? Or do you want to, these people, or do you want to be the, this family that is healthy, holy, and good, and a blessing to the community around you? Listen, God does not need more celebrities. He needs people who say, you get the glory heard you have some blessings for us and for our neighbors. God wants to do this, but he'll only do it if we abandon any selfish motives and we ask like true Jesus followers who are going to use the, 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 the answered prayer for, for expanded influence and for God's literal presence with us and a new reputation that we earn and this new destiny for our families that for God to get some glory. The day that I decide to turn it into the Cliff Purcell show, he says, I'm really not down with that. Deal's over. So let me make this clear. Asking God to make your family rich, problem-free, and popular is selfish, foolish, and wasted breath because he never promised to do it. God isn't interested in turning you into a celebrity. If your aim is to amass self-indulgent wealth and to make somebody's A-list, good luck. Go try it. But God's not going to help you with it. But if as a follower of Jesus, you desire for your family to have a kingdom-building purpose for generations to come, and, to, and, and you want to work side-by-side side with God to make that happen, I believe that you can ask God for expanded influence and get it. I believe that you can ask God to be with you, and he'll do it. He'll come and, and live out your life with you in very real day-to-day -day kind of ways. And I believe that you can ask God to reshape your family's reputation and your family's destiny to bring him glory. And the two of you together can bring that to pass. I believe it. This American individualism thing has emasculated the kingdom of Jesus in America. You, know, I want, you want to know why the church has no strength? It's because we have devolved into individuals. I can't tell you how many times a youth pastor, as a youth pastor and as a lead pastor, I have heard Christian parents tell me that they do not want to influence their own children's decisions regarding faith and future. I want them to choose for themselves. I've seen that go right. Um, never. I'm going to tell you what I think about that. But beware, because a dear friend of mine told me this week that subtlety is not one of my gifts, and I embrace that. So here you go. I think that when Christian parents do nothing more than hope that our kids become followers of Jesus, I think that when we fail to place a firm and guiding hand on them that steers them intentionally in that direction, even when we see signs of the kids resisting it, it's indicative of something, that we have too small a vision 
and that we are derelict in our duties, and we one day will give an account to God for that. We've dedicated a lot of babies at this altar, and you did it for decades before I ever came here. Um, uh, Probably, let's see, Bill's gone today, Aaron's gone today, probably Steve and I know some of the words of the liturgy. There's this place in there where you guys are all mopping your tears and taking pictures because the baby's cute. But we are saying to this, this, this parent or these parents together, and to you, the congregation, you always say, yeah, count us in. We're good for it. Here's what we say. It will be your duty as his or her parents to watch over this child, to bring him or her up in the admonition of the Lord. You promised that. And... In order to achieve this holy end, you must do the following things. Watch over his education that he be not led astray. Direct his youthful feet to the sanctuary and restrain her from evil associates and habits as much as in you lies. That's what you promised. You see, there's this thing that the church has been trying to teach, but not very effectively for generations, and we, we, we miss it in the moment of sentiment, but it's, it's buried deep within our understanding of what it means to be the people of God that we don't decide just for us and then leave the future up to whatever happens. Instead, we intend for our families to be the ones who follow after God. And so we intentionally, from the time they are little buggers, we shape the way that they think, and we shape the way that they act, and we stop them from doing things that are destructive, and we make them do things that they do not like to do that are good for them and good for the people around them. See, you already get some of this. You're already doing it in, in, in small ways. But what I want to encourage you to do today is to look past the moment of, of the difficulty of parenting small children or teens and start dreaming about your family for generations to come. There have been a few people in history who've done it. They've changed the world. I preached something along these lines about a year ago in the Future Family series, and I talked about the family of Jonathan Edwards. He was just a preacher in New England in the 1600s, but he determined that he and his family were going to count for Christ, and and that was going to be their family's entire purpose. And they have hundreds of pastors and missionaries in their family since, scores of college presidents, um, and maybe not to their credit, a bunch of politicians. Um, But... They have been a family that has absolutely shaped America. Some would say that, that the Rockefellers and the Astors have had not had near the effect that Jonathan Edwards' family has had on America because a man and his wife dared to dream for the future and to believe that God keeps his promises. When they grabbed a hold of his plan from antiquity, from the very beginning, and began to work it, that family has seen it come about. I have a friend. His name's John. He's, uh, he's a direct descendant of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he's a, an Assembly of God pastor. And he told me about going to his great-grandmother's house when he was a boy. And he said, whenever we went to great-grandma's house, there was something that was different because she was really, really into God. So my whole family, his dad's a pastor. Um, it's just this family thing. But he said, but my grandma knew God and she was so connected with him that God was present wherever great-grandma was. He said, when you went to grandma's house, yeah, you got food and candy and those things, but you also got on your face. You spent time in prayer because grandma connected with God and she wanted to make sure that the generations following did. So great-grandma, grandma, mom and dad, and John, 
four generations of that family in the house on any given day were being shaped for uh, influence in Christ's kingdom for generations to come. The Bible makes it clear, I think, that God intends for us to shape our families for Christ and for generations to come. The question is, are you going to do that? Are you going to step into your destiny to be the one who shapes generations for Christ? Are you going to dream no bigger than getting little old you to heaven? I mean, I hope you get there. But honestly, if you're the only one you take with you, that's disappointing. God dreams way bigger than that, and he wants you and I to do the same. He's, he's a God who dreamt generational dreams and, and still does and is looking for people who intend to extend his reign through their families. So I wonder who he's going to find at First Nas today that says, yeah, I like that. I'm in. The question is, how can you make it happen? And I think it begins uh, with a husband and wife getting on the same page, or listen, um, single parents deciding to look past the empty slot next to them and looking to the God who is just waiting to be invited into your family and into your legacy-forming process. Granted, it's a way tougher job if you're a single parent. I want you to know that God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't forget single moms and dads. You're not nixed out of the equation. Give me an amen, people. That's worth it. Jabez asked God for it, and I'll bet he prayed that prayer more than once. I'll bet, I'll bet that it was the theme of his prayer throughout his life. When he prayed about whatever he had to do each day, I'll bet that was the thing that ended the prayer. As he laid his head on his pillow at night, I'll bet that's the thing that he asked God for every day. Imagine what your family's by God and for God destiny might look like, and then ask him for it again and again and again and again and again for the rest of your life. Imagine what your family's by God and for God destiny would look like and then ask him for it. He'll tweak it along the way if, if uh, that's not his plan. He can give it a, a little bit of shape if you stay tuned into him. Tell your children that your family has a purpose and that purpose is to be used by God as a great force, unified force for God in this world to love people into the kingdom of Jesus and to show them how to live for him. Tell them that's what our family's here for. I meet young couples who ask me to marry them, and, and, and it, I can tell they haven't thought about this before, and they haven't been taught. So you know what they think their purpose is? To have a family. That, that, that is the purpose. We got married so we can have a family at the end. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. What would you have the family for? What, why is it that God would want to bless your home with lots of little ones or a few? Why? Because he had a plan for this faith, and for your family to extend his kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. So tell your kids, that's your family's purpose. But but that prayer that you pray about your kids, pray it aloud over your children. Remind them often of your family's destiny. Listen, it's not too late to start this. You uh, Parents, listen, if you've got grown kids, you still shape the way they think. Believe you me, I still hear from my mom about what's important, and it's a good thing. She continues to remind me of promises that I made to God, of the testimony of my lips when I was a little child, and the things that our family has valued for a very long time. Tell your children that your family has a purpose to be used by God, and then pray that prayer aloud over your children. Remind them often of your family's destiny. Coach them to remember it. 
And to remember that each of them plays a critical role in embodying your family's legacy and passing it on to the next generation. Which group of grandkids do you not care goes to heaven? Teach your children that each of them has a critical place in your family's legacy so that none will be left out. So make sure that you uh, also convey to your kids that your family's legacy will one day rest on their shoulders. Well, isn't that kind of a lot of weight to put on a kid, Cliff? Yep. And they're built for it. They're built for it. Absolutely, it's a lot of weight to put on a kid. And that is how they become strong, by bearing a little more of the right kind of weight as they grow, as you help them understand that they have got to stand up and take their place in your family and in their family's destiny. Remember, we're talking about building strong families, not weak ones, not ordinary ones. So you've got to put some weight on the kids. Quiz them off and ask them if if they're embracing different parts of your intended legacy. Ask them, how are you doing in the whatever department? And then model it yourself. Here's how we do it. I've told you this a few times. Um, I have this prayer that uh, Laura and I pray, and we pray it often over the kids, and then we quiz them. And I'm not going to embarrass any of the kids today. Um, But it goes like this. I pray, uh, Lord, I want the Purcells to always be Christians all of us. I want you to give us a long-lasting legacy among your people, and may it be a legacy of service, of moral courage, and of Christian virtue. And whichever kid I pray it over, I then ask them to define the terms. What is service? Helping others. What is moral courage? Doing the right thing, even when you're afraid or it's inconvenient. And what is Christian virtue? What's Christian virtue, Noah? Not just doing what's right, but loving what's right. It's about shaping their hearts, our hearts. But I had this aha moment this week when I was uh, working on this sermon. I have not prayed for enough for my family. My legacy is too small. The one that I envisioned is too small. You know what I left out? Evangelism. I have not been asking God to make my family one of those that wins the world to him. I've been asking him to make us the kind of people who are attractive, who, who, who model the, the kind of things that, that God can bless, but I never asked him outright to make us a family of soul winners. My prayer changed this week. God, may the Purcells always be Christians, all of us. Grant us a long-lasting legacy among your people. May it be a legacy of service, of moral courage, of Christian virtue, and evangelism. And now I pledge myself, as my wife and I have for years, to our very last breath, to however many generations of Purcells that lets us witness that we are going to intentionally shape our family to understand this is our purpose. This is the kind of legacy that we want to have. I stepped out of a legacy of alcoholism, adultery, abuse of of kinds that are not fit to mention in in a mixed crowd like this. But I don't have to continue it, and I haven't, and I will not, because I have options, because of the love of God. And as soon as I saw his plan from antiquity past, I latched onto it because he was dreaming of my family when he dreamed. The families can change the world. See, I think one of the reasons that the church has been so ineffective in America is because I thought I had to do it by myself, and we'll see whether you take your spot. And then, you know, kids have to make up their minds for themselves. Who does this convince? Who does this influence? What kind of shape does this give? 
Let's see. I'm not going to see if my family changes the world. We've decided it. We've put ourselves before God and said, here's, here's, here's our plan. Would you grant it like you did Jabez's? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And I'm going to watch it for generations to come. I want to encourage you to do these same things. Listen, there's a lot of things in my life where I go, Lord, I don't think I should get to be a pastor because I don't have X together yet. But I'm going to tell you today, follow my example in this thing. Follow mine and Laura's example in this thing because we're getting this part of it right. And I want to invite you to, to stand alongside us and to decide that you and your family are going to shape this world around us. See, the past is the past. But a present purpose will leave a lasting legacy. But you have to decide in the here and now that your family has a purpose. Your family's purpose isn't just to live till you die, see how it goes. Your family's purpose is to join the ranks of the people of God who extend his reign all the way around the world. I've seen families that, that kind of instinctively got this. Jeremy's family, Jeremy's dad is a guy who and mom have given themselves lock, stock, and barrel to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus. And they taught the kids that they're supposed to do that too. Jeremy and Roberta are teaching their kids that. There's others in this congregation too. But instead of us um, occasionally getting it right, what do you say we commit ourselves to it? You say that a bunch of us today just decide, oh yeah, boy, that makes sense. Let's make it happen. As we uh, conclude today, um, I would say this. Um, oh, I didn't look at the, help me out. Is there a next, um, yeah, the, the last bullet point. I'll go back one. Yeah. So here's how you can do it. Ask God, tell your kids, show your kids, pray for your family's, pray your family's purpose over your kids, teach them to take their responsibility for filling it, quiz them, model it, and if you need some help putting these things together, meet with me. I know Oliver and Katie have been working on it for some time, working on that whole, that whole uh, family legacy prayer. If you need some help uh, giving shape to that, uh, I'll skip meetings to do that, people, okay? The district advisory board will be fine without me if I'm helping disciple families, Okay? So uh, if you want some help with this, why don't you give me a call, and I'd be more than glad to do that. But I think it starts today with daring to believe that God is not taking a wait and see on your family. He has a purpose for it that he dreamed from eternity past when he dreamed you into existence. And you can go before him today humbly and say, we may not be everything that you dreamed we'd be yet, but we're signing up to be remade in your image into a force for Christ and his kingdom in this world. So I want to invite you to stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes or sit, whatever's, whatever's popular, um, <clears throat> comfortable for you and, and least inhibits your ability to communicate with God. I'm just saying, assume the position that works for you prayer-wise and know that these altars are open if that's the way it works for you. If you want to come and surrender your family to God, then an altar is a great place to do that. If you want to come and seek forgiveness for your family's past, This is a great place to do it. And if you want to come and just let the rest of the world slip away so that you and God can have a conversation where you listen to him about his dreams for your family, this can be a good place to do it. So the altars are open. Let's pray. God, I 
I bet you can dream bigger than me. I know you can. I I didn't dream this world into existence. I I can't even fathom the the, the universe has no end, no no bounds, no limits. There's a breaker in my my mind that trips whenever I I start to, to just contemplate these great big giant dreams of yours. But I can dream this, that the Purcells will always be Christians, all of us. God, don't leave any of my family out. Don't let any of my family get away. I want us to be the kind of people have a long-lasting legacy among your people. I want us to be the serving people. I want us to be the people who do what's right when it's tough. And I don't want us to be a bunch of rigid rule followers. I want us to be people who love what's right. And that's why we do it. And Lord, please use my family to win millions to you. I don't know how many generations of Purcells you've got before you call time to a halt. But take my family and use us for great effect in the kingdom of Jesus, I pray. Lord, I have some brothers and sisters in the room here today who say, you have no idea what a disaster my family is. Maybe they're right. But I've watched you take the wreckage of my family and remake it. I pray for my brothers and sisters who today uh, experience greater doubt than they do faith. Lord, I want to ask you to help them and to overcome their doubt. I pray that you'd help us to see this plan in scriptures now when we return to the scriptures to read it. And I pray that you would help us to dare to believe and then to follow through. Lord, I especially want to see some young families who who don't have a, a course to correct yet get a hold of this idea. I want to see some grandparents who say, oh man, I got it so wrong. I tried so hard, but it didn't go so well. I want to see some grandparents say, with my remaining breaths, I will shape my family, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren for Christ. I want to see some, some single parents catch the vision, some young adults who don't have families yet, some teens who say, huh, God, get, God put me in a great family. I could do something with this. But together, Lord, we surrender ourselves and our families to you. Would you please use us? I pray in Christ's name. Amen.